こんにちは。日本クリケットポッドキャストようこそ。僕の名前はアランです。I think that even those who have never heard a word of Japanese before can understand that. But just in case, hello and welcome to the Japan Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kerr, and on this show, I will speak to the people who have played a role in the shaping of cricket in Japan, both on and off the field. I am joined today by a current member of the Japan national squad. I'm edging closer and closer to getting a current international on the show. This man has not yet played for Japan, but it's only a matter of time before he does. He's played a number of games in the country. He scored a number of hundreds in the country, which we'll get on to later. Kendall Kadawaki Fleming, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alan. Cheers. Um, I've been, been a keen listener since you've started. I think it's a great concept and yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, it's good to hear, mate. It's uh, you'll have to make sure you listen to this one because I don't want to lose one of my listener numbers because every listener is fun. <laughs> Um, well, Kendall, thanks for taking the time, mate. I know you're a busy man, so we'll get straight into it. I'd like to start at the beginning. You've got an interesting family background. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and where you were born and what, how your parents met? Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, parents, Terry and Naomi, uh, mum's Japanese and dad's Australian. Uh, they met in Japan when dad was working over there and he had a heavy equipment and machinery business. They got married, had me and my brother Alistair and yeah. So we were born in, in Fukuoka, uh, down the South Island there and, um, yeah, lived there till I was about six years old. Um, and we moved to Australia then. Do you have many memories of your time as a kid in Japan? Yeah, I've got some great memories of like the snow. It's obviously something you don't get much of in Australia and a few, a few snippets here and there, I suppose. Um, I went to a little preschool called Chayama Yuchien, um, where I actually broke the skipping rope record. Guys, I think 108. Yeah, it is 108 from memory. So I put up hundreds from an early age. <laughs> no, I've definitely got some fond memories from there for sure. I actually went back to like kindergarten a few years back and you can't believe how small everything is. It's, just, <laughs> it's funny how you remember things, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's not dissimilar to me. I spent two and a half years living in Hong Kong and I left there when I was five and my earliest memories in life are from Hong Kong. So I, I kind of imagine what what your earliest sort of casting your mind back to Japan and the, that different world. So you then moved, you said about six and, uh, are your mum's family still down in Fukuoka? Uh, no, they're mostly in Tokyo or just outside it. I suppose it depends how you define Tokyo, but yeah, we're really close with my grandma who lives in the heart of Tokyo and, um, my uncle's family as well. They're just a few minutes away from her. So middle of Tokyo. So you've been coming back pretty regularly, even after you moved to Australia? Yeah, I'd say once a year, um, we've gone back generally around New Year's sort of time, try to get skiing for a week or so, see the family. But, um, obviously in the last few years, it's been probably more towards the middle of the year, try to get some cricket in as well. So yeah, I've, I've tried to go back probably most years. Absolutely love it there. So yeah. Yeah. Great. So what was it like moving to Australia? How much do you remember about those? arriving in a, such a different country and adjusting to life in, in Queensland. Yeah. To be honest, you don't, you don't remember heaps about it at that sort of age, but I do remember I, I couldn't speak a lick of English when I came over, I went to English school in Japan, but you sort of just, 
um, learn some songs and things like that, doing like the alphabet, and Christmas carols and stuff. So I actually couldn't speak any English in a uh, conversational sense. So that probably wasn't the easiest thing for me coming here. But I'll just remember, I would always try to play, you know, kick the football around in the park or play handball, tennis, t-ball, whatever it was. Um, and I think that was a really great way for me to sort of fit in early doors. I think, I, I suppose sports are universal language, isn't it? And that's something that I'm sure we'll get to later on when we talk about World Cup. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about sport and I work in it. Communication barriers kind of fall away as soon as you start playing a game as long as everyone understands the rules or can watch and figure them out. Everyone's best mates when you're you know, scoring tries, kicking goals, yeah, taking wicket, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, remember your dad tells a story about going into your school at the end of your first term for a parent-teacher meeting and speaking to your teacher and the teacher going, yeah, Kendall's very quiet. And your dad's first out laughing, saying, yeah, you can't speak any English. I mean, you figured that out yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was my first two years there. I had to go to ESL class like English as a second language. So yeah, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't speak any English for my first couple of years. And how's your Japanese now? Well, it's completely flipped, hasn't it? So, <laughs> oh yes, you're harsh on yourself. Yeah, I, I can pretty much understand it because I speak to my grandma and well, she speaks to me in Japanese. And even now when I speak to my mum, or I go over to their place, they speak to me in Japanese and I'll respond in English. And that's how it was in our household growing up, I suppose, with my brother and I. You know, reading and writing is pretty much minimal, but I'd like to think I can get my point across. So, you know, speaking with the Japanese boys in the squad, I don't really have any issues communicating. But yeah, it's definitely something I'd like to work on in the next few years. Yeah, great. Well, we'll come back to the communication side of things in the squad anyway, because I'm interested in digging into that a little bit. Why don't you tell me about the Australian cricket pathway? Because obviously it's very different to how it is in Japan. What are your earliest memories of playing cricket? Well, our first memories of playing cricket, I suppose it's in the backyard with, with my dad and my granddad. I think they were the first people to teach me how to hold the bat. Um, in terms of organized cricket, I think it was the under 12s at Surface Paradise Cricket Club. Um, I would have been 10 or 11, I think at that point. There were just a, a few of us, a few mates that played uh, Aussie rules for that club in the winter and then signed up for cricket in the summer. So yeah, that were my first memories of organized cricket. Where did it go from there? Did you go into a sort of age group pathway or how did you find your way into senior cricket? Yeah. So I guess the structure, I was on the Gold Coast then and each, each um, region in Queensland came together for a, for a state carnival every year. So, you know, I was the Gold Coast, as I said, I think there would have been about 12 regions in Queensland and. Uh, from under 12s through to under 15s, I would have played in that national, oh, I guess that annual tournament. Um, and from there, they sort of picked a Queensland under 12s or Queensland under 15s, 17s. And um, I was fortunate enough to be picked in those teams. And yeah, from the 15s carnival, I actually picked an Aussie 15 slash 16s team, which I was selected in. And we toured the Caribbean, which was a pretty awesome experience. Oh, right. Uh, so, okay. So you were playing representative cricket by the age of 15. So you obviously became pretty clear that you were, had some ability, had, some, had a bit of talent. And how did you go about nurturing that? Did you have a specific coach who helped you or was it family or did it all just kind of come naturally? Uh, no, definitely not naturally. I'd say there was an element of 
you know, natural ability or talent there. Cause I always loved tennis more than cricket, probably as a young kid, I think until I was probably, yeah, until about that time of the tour, when I went, got picked for Australia, I probably saw tennis as my first sport and I was more of a scrapper in that sport. Like I loved getting into the contest and, you know, getting into the fight and stuff like that. But with cricket, it probably came a bit more naturally in terms of my batting. Um, but at my school down the coast, I went to TSS. Yeah. Tony Bins is the name of my coach. I suppose I've been seeing him, um, ever since that. So for the last uh, 10 or 12 years, I've probably seen him. Um, it's only this year or the last couple of years where I've started full-time work where I haven't gone probably see him once a week, but I still talk to him. I spoke to him on the weekend and, um, yeah. So he's been someone, a mentor, I suppose. That's something I, I hear a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts and hear a lot of professional cricketers chatting and even guys who've played all the way up to test level, they still go back to the guy who coached them when they were 10, 12 years old and, and get that advice. Cause that's the person who knows your game the best, right? Knows you inside out. No, exactly. And he's, he's had, he has a similar relationship with some guys that have gone on to be better than me. You know, like Sam Hain uh, in the UK is a very good player. And every time he comes back to Australia, he just goes to see Tony for a couple of weeks. Um, and plenty of other guys that have gone on to play for Queensland and Australia. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned the tennis and you mentioned some AFL as well. As you know, in Japan, kids tend to specialize in a sport from the age of 12. I'm interested in what you think playing other sports has done for you and whether it's helped you become a better cricketer. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, 12, 12 too early in my opinion. Like, uh, you know, you're still growing, you're still developing and I just don't understand how a 12 year old kid can basically choose that sport. Um, you know, you hear a lot of professional athletes and they say they had to make a choice at 18 even or 16, 18, things like that. Um, uh, isn't it Mitch Stark? He wasn't even bowling fast until he was 17. Like there are just so many stories like that. So I just think 12 is too early to have to specialize, but you know, that's a, that's a cultural thing, I suppose. Do you find that playing tennis helped you develop as a, as a cricketer? Yeah, I think the resilience you get from playing sport is probably the most sort of transferable um, attribute of skill. But um, I think what helped me more than anything was playing cricket in the backyard. Like I'd play competitive games with my brother and my dad and dad wouldn't let us bat until we got him out. (laughs) And you know, my mom tells stories about how we'd be crying because we'd just be bowling all afternoon. But that, you know, I think we learn a lot from that. (laughs) Probably says a bit about my dad, but, um, definitely learn a lot doing that. And you know, I'd, I'd do the same to my brother. I'd. Um, I got to a point as a kid where I was pretty confident he couldn't get me out. So I just let him bat first, make a few runs and then fill my boots in the afternoon. But in all seriousness, uh, I think people playing backyard cricket or it's equivalent can really help sort of develop skills. I went to school with Matt Renshaw and we were mates growing up and at, at his family home, there was a little sort of corridor next to his pool where it'd be out if you hit either side of this corridor on the full. Mm. Um, so essentially you wouldn't play the ball unless you had to, and you'd play it late and into the ground. And, you know, he's obviously developed his game since he was a kid, but I don't think there's any coincidence that it is one of the best leavers of the ball in Australia. And that's from playing backyard cricket at his, at his family home when he was a kid, I reckon. Yeah. It's those experiences that shape you, aren't they? It's interesting. Mm. 
Um, okay, so where's your cricket at now? You're what, 25 years old now and you're playing Premier Cricket in Brisbane. So why don't you tell us about how you got yourself into first grade, how you found that and yeah, where your game's at now? Yeah, so I actually made my first grade debut in Brisbane when I was 15 or 16. Like I got thrown in for a one-day game, very young. Um, I just remember being so nervous. We were playing against a few Queensland players. I think Ryan Broad, Jason Florence, a few guys like that. I got it dark. Like it was just that, like, I don't have any, any good memories from that day, to be honest, but you sort of, you get, you get a taste of the, the standard at some point and you just know what it takes to not succeed, but you know, you know what the standard is, um, when you've never played anything like that before. And, um, I guess it gives you something to work towards, but in terms of my cricket now, I've been playing regular first grade for North for probably six, seven years now. Yeah, it really cemented my spot there probably in the last five years. And the last couple of years have probably been my most consistent, even though I've been hitting less balls than um, ever probably. It's just knowing your game as a batsman. Like, you know, you hear about people saying they didn't know their game until they were 30 and I'm 25 now and I feel like I understand my game a lot more now than I did when I was, you know, 21, 22, hitting balls four times a week. So, but right now I'm actually... I'm actually not playing, having a bit of a break. I was really busy with um, work and studying for my CFA postgrad until late August. And there's a few other factors at the moment, including obviously the qualifiers being cancelled and um, needing to have surgery at some point in the next few months that sort of contributed to me taking a bit of time off at this stage. And yeah, if I'm, if I'm playing, I don't want to half-ass it. So I'm already excited for next year and what's in store for me cricket-wise, especially with um, chatting to you the other day about the, the prospect of the Asian games and stuff like that. So, yeah. 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 Okay. So just looking at cricket in Japan and your experiences over here, you said you used to come back to Japan every year. When did you first find out about the cricket scene here and how did that come about? So I thought this question might come up and you actually wouldn't believe it, but I had this book. I was a real badger as a kid. Like I loved stats and reading and numbers and stuff. And I had this book called cricket around the world or something like that. And yeah, there was actually a little section in there about Japan. It was only a few sentences and it was like, you know, the British colonies introduced cricket to Japan and maybe, maybe another sentence. But from that point, I knew that there was some form of cricket in Japan and yeah, I've, I don't think I've even spoken uh, about this, but yeah, anyway, so I knew from, from then that there might've been some cricket in Japan. Um, from there, I think, I think Terry got in contact with the JCA and then, um, I flew over to meet with you guys. I would have been 18 or so. And then we've been in contact ever since, I suppose. Yeah. So that was late 2014, 2015, something like that. Yeah, it would have been 2014, yeah. Yeah, okay. And yeah, I remember you coming over and us having a, a barbecue at the Thurgate's house. So was that your first involvement? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I yeah that's where I remember. You ended up playing for the Cheaper Sharks, a smart bit of recruitment from Dougal Benefield. <laughs> um, and it took a while for you to get your first games in. I think your first matches were 2018. What were your first impressions of, of cricket once you actually got out on the field? I had no idea really what to expect. Like obviously because I'd spoken to you guys, I knew there was you know, organized cricket and there was a national squad and there were some good players, but 
having never seen a game or played one before, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, that, that first match is that, I don't know, I've got it. I've got it all here. Is it the first game? 4th of August, 2018, uh, was your Jason okay. date against the Tokyo Wombats. And it was the first match at the new Silo International Pre ground, ground two. First game ever played there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I remember. It was the first game on that oval and those ovals were just looking awesome compared to, um, I think you took me for a little walk around there when I came over a year or two before that. And it was just chalk and cheese. Like the, the grounds looked amazing and still to this day, obviously are looking as good as ever. So yeah, I remember I was playing some Chiba Sharks against the, the Wombats, like you said, and I think I opened with Dougal. Um, Chiba Sharks legend, Dougal Bettingfield. And one of the, one of the, um, I guess me main memories for me from that day was I had to speak like, obviously batting with Dougal, I was speaking English to him. And then I think, um, Arata came in, I was speaking Japanese to him. And then I think Marcus English, Tommy Japanese. So that was really unique for me. And obviously you know, I was able to get a few away, which was good, but um, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And yeah, I still love playing cricket over there to this day. Yeah. Just looking down that scorecard. Yeah. You opened with Dougal, you had Takadi, you had Alata Oweda, you had Asala, you are speaking Shinalese. That would have been good. <laughs> and then Marcus, Tommy, Manebru. Yeah. So yeah, fair old mix. But yeah. You made 146 that day. So that must've been pretty satisfying. Yeah, it was good. I think there was, they had this off spinner that everyone was intimidated by. And I remember KB was talking about this off. He, I don't, I don't remember his name, sorry, but he, he sort of chucked off. He's, he was, he was good. Like he landed them all. But I, I remember I really wanted to make a point against this guy because all the boys were talking about how he, he just ran through him last time and things like that. And yeah, I managed to get a few away against him. So that was, that was good. And obviously followed by a few sup bottles that you liked it up with taking three wickets at the end of the game as well. Three, three for three and three overs. <laughs> oh yeah. That's probably the last wicket. I think that's the last time I ever bowled medium pace. So <laughs> really? <laughs> well, yeah, you get yeah. fast fairly high there. Um, tricky to live up to, <laughs> except a week later on your Japan cup debut, you've played in a game where the Chiba Sharks have won by a single run and you've scored another hundred. So what do you remember about that game? I think this game. Is this the game that um, Chris Thurgate and KB were playing? It was indeed, yes. Yeah, okay. I've got the score. I've got the scorecard here. Yeah, Chris. Okay, this is the the um the Suno the Suno fields that were already there before. This um, current fields, River Ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually really like those grounds. It's or well, that one in particular because it's sort of. Um, it's secluded from the rest of them and there's like high grass around it. It's, it's really unique sort of ground. Um, but yeah, that, that game, the standard wasn't as good in this league, but it's a great opportunity to sort of introduce a few of the younger fellas like Ash Thurgate. Yeah. You, you opened up with Marcus and put on a hundred stands. Yeah. Okay. And, and then because Chris was playing, <laughs> Marcus wasn't allowed to keep. So he's ended up taking shots. <laughs> I'm not sure he would have bowled since, but uh, yeah, Marcus Thurgate, four overs, four for 21. Remarkable. Yeah, there you go. I, I think Marcus has some talent with the ball. He's obviously a good keeper and he's just a good athlete. So um, I just hope he sort of sets his mind to something and then practices it because I think he could be good at, you know, anything that he really sets his mind to. But 
I remember from that game, I, I took one of the best catches I've ever taken, but I just had to act cool because people thought I was just that good, but I'm actually a terrible fielder. So that's something I remember from that game. Like I took this catch and I was just acting cool and on the inside, I was like, oh, that's the best but catch I've ever taken. So, <laughs> yeah, so, was so, yeah. so then after that, you, you've made a bit of an effort to try and try and play games over here. Most years you played in the Japan Premier League the following year, Japan's leading T20 comp. Uh, what did you make of that game? You played for um, the East Kanto Sunrisers. I think you played the double header, actually. So, yeah, what do you remember about those? Um, so I remember I was I was with Dougal. I think we took the van there um, in the morning to trek down and just playing essentially in the middle of Tokyo is is a pretty cool experience. Basically, there's a net around the field. There is a net around the field, yeah. And you can't you can't hit it over the net where you get banned or something like that. Or right. like, you're, you're immediately yeah. out and yeah, you might get banned as well. Yeah. Like there was one where I was pretty close. I think I top edged a sweep shot and something. And yeah, that, that would have been pretty um I would have been pretty dirty if I caught out from that. But yeah, no, that was a cool experience. And the stand stand was good. Like the Japanese players are obviously really athletic and um I think we could and should be the best fielding country in East Asia Pacific, really. Um, and a couple of the spinners really stood out to me that day. I think um, Sabarish, who's obviously in the Japanese national squad now, being one of the most, or probably the most dominant player in Japan over the last few years. And, um, and then Tadayama as well, who, um, yeah, so they're probably the two guys that stood out for me that day. But in terms of general standard, I feel like the standard has improved since I started going over in the last you know, six or seven years. Yeah. And hopefully competitions like that, and we get the best players together a bit more often can help. So yeah, your, your career in Japan so far, you're averaging 69 in the JCL, 107 in the Japan cup and 101 in the Japan premier league. So that's pretty good effort. And there was another theme that ran through all of your matches that you've played in Japan so far is that you haven't lost any of them. So. Again, mate, you've set the bar pretty high and you've become something of a lucky charm. So when you do get to actually make your debut for the Spam team, let's hope we keep this, this run going, shall we? Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> now, before we get on to the, the men's squads, I did want to talk to you about your involvement with the under-19 team. Uh, that same year, 2019, you were over playing for the, the East Kanto side in the Japan Premier League, but Japan had qualified for the under-19 World Cup. Everyone was all... Very excited about that. You played in a match against the under-19s and made a few runs that day too, just the, just 182 in that match. And then you ended up coming and doing a bit of coaching with those boys. Do you want to talk us through that experience and how you found it? Yeah. No, so that was an awesome experience. And by, by that point, I knew a few of the boys in the team pretty well. So for that game, I remember it was just like a, I don't know, a few, few people put together from the Japan Cup, wasn't it? Or Japan Cricket League. So I didn't want to embarrass myself against the boys, but I was pretty keen to see how they were going for myself after following the qualifiers pretty closely. And people probably don't realize how tough the actual conditions can be in Japan. Like obviously the, the standard of bowling and obviously playing on synth and stuff like that, like that, that stuff's quite a lot easier than what I play in Australia, but the heat and the humidity in summer is just something else. Like it's, you know, it gets hot in Brisbane, but I'd, I've never felt like that compared to how it is in Sano. You can't, you definitely can't have a big night and then go out the next day and Sano and make, make a hundred on it, I reckon. So yeah, I remember thinking in the latter part of that innings that 
the boys could be in for a few tough matches in South Africa if they didn't sort of improve their energy and their fielding because um, they probably didn't know this, but I knew that they'd be playing against some better players than me at the World Cup. So, yeah, I, I guess it was just a, a shock to them for the standard, but that that part of it, like fielding and the energy, I didn't think they, they went to another level before the World Cup. And, you know, in that regard, I think boys acquitted themselves pretty well. But in, in terms of coaching, uh, returning to coach over the summer, it was it was a pretty cool experience. And I think I really gained sort of a passion for coaching during that time. Like I haven't acted on it, I suppose, since, but it is something that I'd be sort of keen to pursue if I can do it at the same time as playing. My priority at the moment is obviously playing for Japan and playing or preparing for the Asian games. But if I can sort of do some coaching as well, I really, I really love that side of it. And it's like a puzzle, I suppose. And explaining something to one person in a certain way works for that person, but it won't work for another. And I guess that's the, that's the art of coaching. And that's why some people are, are so good at it. They're renowned for being master communicators, I guess. And even at the world cup and dealing with these boys, you'd have to speak to some of the Japanese boys very differently to how little Japanese boys, but you'd have to speak to some of the Japan based boys differently to how you'd speak to someone who like Kento who's playing sport in Australia. And I think like the self-belief and I guess Japanese kids are just self-deprecating by nature and by culture, but yeah, it's just speaking to kids differently. And that was really interesting challenge for me. Yeah. I definitely find that a interesting way of looking at things. And we touched on it already about the early specialization in Japan, but the way that sport is taught in Japan as well is very different to what you and I would have experienced from our backgrounds. And that will then inform how they need to be coached throughout their lives playing sport. And I guess as a coach coming in, who's grown up most of your sporting career in Australia, you do have to try and find a, a matching way of getting about things that can get your point across in a way that they understand and that they respond to, but also then you might have to do something completely different to players who are based overseas. And that, that must be quite a challenge. And do you feel that that's really helped you to learn about the intricacies of coaching? Yeah, a hundred percent. And not just coaching, but captaining. Like I've come back and I've captained my team at Norths and I know that everyone's different. Like you, there are some introverts out there, but if you actually get to have a conversation with them, you'll, you'll get to know pretty quickly that these guys are thinking about everything and they actually have, you know, more important things or better things to say than some of the people that are always talking. And like, it's just, yeah. So I think it's definitely changed my approach to sort of communicating with people. Yeah. Great. So then you ended up traveling to South Africa as assistant coach to Dougal, what was it like going out to a, a new country, a country very different to what we've got here in Japan and it's pretty different to Australia as well. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was a great experience. Obviously I was pretty chuffed to be offered that role on the support or coaching staff for that tour. And I think I filled a bit of a niche role for the group as a bit of a big brother, um, as well as an assistant coach. Um, obviously the boys were only most of them 15, 16. So they would have been ripe to go for this qualifiers, but, um, less said about that, the better, I think, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I loved it. And South Africa, like the security was 
was always, you know, we, we had a little patrol car taking us from ground to ground and, you know, we weren't allowed to get outside the hotel in, in team shorts or kit. And it was a very unique experience, but yeah, I absolutely loved it. So the other thing that came out of that tournament was how the Japanese team was perceived globally. Um, we had a mix of players in that group. We had 11 of the 15 were Japanese passport holders, but 13 of the 15 had lived, were either passport holders or had lived in Japan pretty much their whole lives. So when you have players who have grown up in a country their whole lives and come through the system, or when you have players who have perhaps one parent, but lived overseas most of their life and they come together as the Japan team, we found that the media that were there would often refer to us as a multicultural side. How did you feel about that as a half Japanese person with a, I will say Anglican sounding name who might get also put into that bracket of being a multicultural person rather than a member of the Japan nation, if you like. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think it's a, it's a complex question as well. And like I said to you, I think we could probably have a separate podcast about this sort of issue, but, um, that line of journalism that was going on during that world cup, that really sort of affected me. And, you know, speaking as someone who's, um, who was born in Japan, um, I consider myself Japanese and Australian, like to basically judge the nationality of someone based on their surname or their appearance isn't, isn't right to me. And I had a bit of a run in with one of these journalists and I definitely regret the way that I went about it for sure, but I don't regret the sentiment. And I, I felt like someone needed to stand up for the boys because basically, and I've, I've printed off an article in preparation for this question. Um, and I can't, I can't actually get the original article from Crick Info, but basically it's from emerging cricket talking about this and you know, they put it pretty well when they say every single Japan national team player is Japanese. How do we know? Because they all qualify to play for the country and it takes a significant amount of time in their upbringing as people for them to do so. And if Crick Info actually bothered to do any research, they would have found out that Japan's selection policy is actually tighter than just the ICC eligibility as well. Like, you know, I didn't qualify to play for Japan until couple of years where, you know, I've held a passport, I was born there, I would automatically qualify for a lot of other countries, but yeah, I, I just felt it was really lazy journalism and there's, there's a screenshot here. How are Japan in a cricket world cup? The core of the Japan under 19 team is made up of players of Indian and English descent. Like, I'm sorry, but that's, that's raw shit. Really? You know, like Ash Thurgate, Mark Thurgate. This, their dad's Australian, so they have that Thurgate is their surname, but you can't get any more Japanese than these brothers. And, you know, like Ishan, Neil, Neil, these guys, you can say, oh, they've got, they're of Indian descent, but you know, they, they've been living in Tokyo since they were two and have come through the JCA pathways. Neil's lived in Japan since he was three months old and Ishan's lived through all his life. He was born in Japan. Uh, and yeah, exactly. Dad was Japan when he was three and that's, that's the, the latest of that core group and all learn the game in the system. And I've heard other associate cricketers talking about this. So if, if you've come through the system, if you've learned the game in a country, then 
there's absolutely no way you should not be allowed to represent that country. Uh, and, and I have an agreement with that. And I think that who feels that they have the right to s say what nationality another person is, especially when they've never met them. Yeah. I find that remarkable. You know, I think nationality is a very personal thing. And, and you touched on it earlier where nationality and heritage is very personal, but it's also changing so much in the global landscape these days as society becomes more globalized. You are Japanese and Australian. I have a daughter who is Japanese and English. I mean, she's been born in Japan and she lives in Japan now. She has a Japanese mother, but I can tell you what, she's going to know about her English heritage. That's just hell. <laughs> and if anyone tries to tell her that she's not English enough, you know, they'll, they'll have me to answer to. So, you know, we've seen it even recently, Jade Dernbach is going to go and play for Italy. Now he played for England. He played his last match for England like eight or nine years ago, but he's got an Italian mother. Uh, so he's eligible to go and play for them. And I think that, you know, that's totally within his right. I don't have any issue with that. And I think that it's something to be encouraged. And I remember, I seem to remember you saying that you had a teammate in Queensland who had played for one of the associate teams. Is that right? Yeah, I actually have played with a few. So one's Chris Kent. He played for Norse in PNG. Right. Um, Asad Vala also come and play for North and he's obviously doing very well now. So, and those guys, I remember you saying that those guys had talked to you about what it meant for them to go and play for their country of birth and that being a bit of a motivator for you as well to get involved with Japan cricket. Is that, is that fair? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess, I guess as a kid growing up in Australia, playing cricket, you dream of wearing baggy greed, but I, I definitely felt that exact same source of pride when I was at the World Cup with a Japanese shirt on. Um, and it's been a goal of mine since, since I heard about it. So yeah. And I think it's, it can be tough as at times for sure. Like I remember thinking it was probably around 15, 16, 17, when I was probably struggling with it the most, there was actually an incident at the under 17s national carnival where some spectators heard some I suppose racist comments being said by fielders when I was batting. I won't, I won't mention the state it was against, but yeah, Cricket Australia were pretty swift in reacting and I had to go to provide some evidence that night and things like that, but nothing ever really came of it. But I suppose casual racism is definitely a, a bit of a thing. And when I was coming through my club, it probably bothered me a bit, but nowadays I'm, I'm just really proud of my heritage. Yeah. I'm definitely not in the camp of strict political correctness, but I think there's a clever way to do it. And because I can sort of relate to when some people talk about, you know, feeling like a gaiji in Japan and then feeling the equivalent elsewhere as well. Like I'm, mm. I'm definitely, I can relate to that for sure. So I just can't cop the sort of articles that were being, you know, talk about the competitiveness of the game or the ability of the kids. That's fine. But when you're talking about nationality and, and stuff like that, especially when it's all false, I couldn't really cop that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it became especially galling when it's talking about kids as well, you know? Yeah, exactly. 16, 17 years old. I think there's a bit more of a responsibility the journalists have before they you know, find out the facts, before they start throwing things around. And that informs, you know, spectators or cricket fans around the world who might read those articles. And we saw one article gets written and something has been picked up by every, you know, media outlet that was reporting on the under-19 World Cup was peddling the same line. And it was, 
yeah, it was definitely frustrating. I find it interesting. Sort of the last thing I was going to ask you about, and so I introduced you at the beginning of the show is Kendall Kadawaki Fleming, and you've chosen in representing Japan to add your mother's maiden name to your name when representing Japan. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that decision? Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like a huge decision for me. Um, it's my, it's my mother's name and that's part of my heritage and you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. I think it's unfortunate that people use names as a label, but the reality is they're going to do it. You know, if you're looking at a scorecard that's full of Makoto Taniyama, Tsuyoshi Takada, Kendall Fleming, the name stands out and people make judgments rightly or wrongly. Yeah. And you know, they shouldn't do that. But if you have the opportunity and you're keen to put Kendall Kadawaki Fleming or Kento Otado Bell, as soon as Kento has done, Kento got lumped in with the, you know, so-called Japanese players. Whereas, as you mentioned, you know, he's got one Japanese parent and he's lived most of his life in Australia, but just because of his name, he was on one side, whereas the Thurgates were put on the, the, the foreigner side, if you like. Yeah. The fact they've lived their entire life in Japan. It's just, it was all messed up. It's, it's ridiculous, yeah. but I guess it's, yeah, if you've got that opportunity and as I said, I'm proud of that side of it. It, it was a no brainer. It, it goes both ways and that we're talking about how people outside look, but we have to, I guess, be honest and realistic about it in that it's the same within Japan as well. Yeah. And having a Japanese name will help you be accepted by the Japanese cricket playing public as well. And it's a sad reality, but it is a reality all the same. Mm. Like thinking back on that squad of, um, like I was talking about how all these guys have their own story and they're all Japanese and the one, the one player we can say that might not, you know, associate himself as a Japanese player is Max, but he literally couldn't qualify for any other country. Like he's got a terrific story. I, I really like Max's story. Yeah. You know, left England when he was six years old and hadn't played for, hadn't lived anywhere for the required three years to qualify for. And so the only country he was qualified for was England. And yet he had never played cricket there at the time. Yeah. Which I found, you know, remarkable. He hadn't learned any cricket there. He lived in Germany and Dubai and of course, Japan. Um, and so, yeah, we, we had special exemption for him to be part of the squad and, and he's still, you know, in, in contention now as a, as a Japanese qualified player, but, mm. but yeah, it's because of him, because of his English parents, one player, suddenly the bulk of our squad was had English heritage or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remarkable stuff. So that segues quite nicely into this nationals team it's part of our conversation, where, as you mentioned, Japan had a much stricter qualification and eligibility criteria than the ICC do. And so you didn't become eligible for selection until 2019. Um, when you did eventually get that call, how, how did that feel to be finally part of the squad? Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. As I said, it probably wasn't the path I had in mind as a kid or even a couple of years before that, but to be selected in the national team of my birth country, it's pretty cool. So and now I just want to get out there and play in a proper tournament. <laughs> Yeah. So it's obviously been frustrating that, yeah, called up in, in 2019 and that was three, three months you got called up three months after our last tournament. We haven't played one since December, 2018, which is a bit of a kick in the guts, but as part of the squad, how are you and the rest of the players staying motivated? Yeah, it's, it's definitely frustrating, but there things out of our control with COVID and pullouts, financial issues or whatever, but we're definitely still motivated. We've got a WhatsApp group. 
yeah, the Asian games, that's the, that's the next goal. So, um, just thinking about it makes me keen to train again. Yeah. So looking ahead to that Japan men's team have never competed in the Asian games and hopefully there's an opportunity in 2022 in China. Uh, that's due to take place in September. So definitely something to be excited about and to, to focus on with the opportunity to play against some, some pretty serious cruelers, uh, hopefully. Mm. And you mentioned the group, so, you know, you've been coming over and you, you spent a fair bit of time with the boys. Yeah, how, how would you describe the, the vibe in that group and the, and the atmosphere amongst the, the lads? It's very positive, always positive. You know, that's a very Japanese trait to just be up and about, I suppose. But yeah, they're a great bunch of guys. I remember at the beginning when I was training with the squad in you know, 16, 17, 18, the small number of the players were probably a bit sort of standoffish, probably thinking that the JCA were just bringing me in as a ring in to take someone's spot. But hopefully in going over for the last few years, playing games, getting to know everyone, I've hopefully gained the respect of the group and, you know, shown a commitment to Korean Japan. So yeah, it's a great group. Yeah, great. So I read an interview with you recently where you were asked who your most annoying teammate was. <laughs> Can you remember your answer? Uh, yeah, I think I said Marcus, didn't I? You did indeed. Marcus Thurgate. So talk us through his annoying traits. Yeah, definitely a bit stiff in hindsight. Um, I knew he'd take it well. So like, I remember when we played India, so this is us as in the under 19s, um, a few of my mates were watching on TV. Obviously that was our TV game for the tournament. And, you know, we only got 40 or 50 or whatever it was, but they commented on how loud the keeper was every ball. Who's this Japanese keeper? He won't shut up. And I'm just like, and I love that. Like, I think, I think that's an awesome trait for a wicked keeper. Um, obviously when you're standing next to it, like ask, um, ask Dukes has been standing next to him for the last, well, five, six years in club cricket. It could probably get a bit annoying, but no, Marcus is a ripper of a kid and I don't have enough good things to say about the Thurgate family and what they do for cricket in Japan. I think it was his sledge to the guy with an IPL contract when they played to play 40 that got picked up the most when he said, uh, you don't want to get out now, mate, do you? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty good. Um, so that guy could, you know, finance Japan cricket if he wanted. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Okay. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the game over here and, and what are your opinions then on how cricket can develop in Japan and what's required to take the game forward? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a real team effort, I suppose, between the JCA, the players, the clubs, in my opinion, I think it sort of starts from the top. Like if good performances from the men, like the flagship teams being the men's, women's and night teams, that can sort of get a bit, a bit of media attention. And hopefully that sort of incentivizes some of the young players to stay in the sport at, at those key ages that you sort of referred to earlier, where they have to commit to a sport. Um, if they can see that the national teams doing this or doing that, or, you know, we just beat China and Korea and that. I think that can really help with those key ages going into junior high school or, you know, they might be finishing uni where they play cricket at uni, things like that. So yeah, I think it's a real team effort. Club cricket's very important and that's come along in leaps and bounds and, you know, obviously high performance, the JCA has made a commitment to high performance. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of things, but I think the JCA has done a pretty good job. What do you reckon? Yeah, well, I reckon we're going to keep this podcast short, mate. I'm like, I'm going to go on for it. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. Look, it, you, know, you can't be what you can't see. And making cricket more visible is a key part of our strategy. Promotion of the gang. 
uh, both in media and, you know, on the ground is vital to everything we do. And, you know, the more Japanese eyeballs that see the game of cricket will hopefully fall in love with it. I firmly believe that cricket's a great sport. Cricket can do a lot. You know, you've talked to yourself right at the start of this show about how cricket or sport in general helps you to communicate with people when you can speak their language. And, you know, cricket as a game, again, I was chatting with Dougal about this the other day, you know, people talk about the length of cricket as a negative, but actually the length of the game of cricket can easily be a positive because it gives you time to spend with your teammates that you do not get in other sports. You know, the yeah. time when you're, when you're batting 11 and, you know, the top order are having a day out and you're just sitting there enjoying the, the way the game's going and chatting with your teammates and sitting in the sun, like that is great time. I've spent many a happy hour doing that because I always batted at 11. Um, you know, that's what, that's what cricket's all about. And the shorter you make the game, it was about T10 or whatever, the shorter you make that game, you, you detract from that. And it's on us as the JCA to you know, educate people around great aspects of the sport. Sports doesn't have to be all action all the time. Yeah. You know, the, the, the moments that you get when you're not on the field can be just as powerful and in keeping people in the game as the moments you get on the field. Yeah. We, and we've spoken about this as well, like that half an hour, an hour after a game, just sitting down with your teammates and having a beer or a juice or whatever that might be. I think, you know, I, I remember those times more than, more than batting a lot of the time. So I think that's a really important part of cricket and, um, hopefully we can sort of implement that. Yeah. It's the, the, the camaraderie and the, the friendships that you make along the way are, are always what people talk about when they finish their playing career. They talk about missing the group, not necessarily missing the game. And I think that's uh, definitely a culture we want to try and implement. Yeah. Um, and what about your own ambitions? You know, in the past, I know you were certainly looking up the Australia pathway and, you know, looking at the Queensland state team. Is that something you still feel you could, you could reach? Uh, yeah, look, you never know. Like if, if you peel off three or four hundreds in a, in a season in first grade, you're, you're right there, I suppose they. You know, they look at first grade performances, but you know, realistically, um, it's probably unlikely. I think that my personal goal is to play for Japan and, and beat PNG. I think that's a pretty lofty goal in itself. So, so I, yeah, I love, I love playing cricket. I love playing at North. So I'd love to win another premiership with, with my club here. But yeah, in terms of personal ambition, it's playing for Japan and scoring a hundred for Japan. How have you found balancing? work you said you've got a lot of work and studies as well How have you found balancing that with with your cricket because that's a huge issue you know i guess all over but particularly in japan where you know it's cricket is still establishing itself yeah it's it's an interesting question i think on one hand being busier than in the past away from cricket it actually makes you want and need an outlet like cricket even more than when you're just focusing on you know uni and playing cricket um, but on the other hand obviously you're, you're busy and it can be tough to get to training at, at 5.30 when you've been working for 10 hours or whatever. I guess more than anything, I find it physically difficult. Like sitting at a desk all day with a shit posture for 10 or 12 hours and then, you know, I've had back issues and hammy issues at the best of times. And so I find that that probably difficult. And, you know, the batting side of things, I haven't had an issue with at all, but fielding like i'm not a good fielder as i've spoken about it doesn't come naturally to me but i used to train a lot at it you know every week two or three times i just 
be taking catches and fielding and there's nothing worse than cricket than dropping a catch like it's the worst feeling and one i know all too well <laughs> yeah likewise so at the moment i'm i'm not playing but i'm i'm really excited to get back into it so yeah yeah cool all right mate well look i tend to finish the show with some relatively quick fire questions we'll start off with some cricket specific ones and then we'll talk a bit about japan why don't you tell me the best player you've played with or against chris lynn i have to go back to like i've played against a number of tests and ex-test cricketers but um he's the most dominant player i've ever played against he actually scored two double hundreds against my team in the space of a month in one in a one day out and one in a two day out it um i just think he's the best ball striker i've ever seen and how consistently he does it as well. So he, he's the best I've played against, I think. And in Japan? Uh, I have to go with Tani. Um, I think he's a he's a really good bowler that I think would be suited to longer form cricket. Like he gives it a rip. Very good fielder, good ball striker. So yeah, I'm going to go with Tani. Cool. Best thing you've ever learned from a coach? So our captain a few years ago for the North was uh, a guy by the name of Brendan Nash. Uh, so he was our captain a few years ago at I did a fair bit of batting with him. I guess he was four, I was five, I think. And he just like relentlessly bang on. Like if you got to 20 or something, he'd just say, you have so many bad days as a batsman. Once you get in, you've you've just got to make the most of it. Like you've got to, you know, or if you get some luck, come on. Like you're going to have so many bad days as a batter, make the most of it today. So I feel like I've really taken that on board and I've sort of tried to pass that on to a few of the Japanese boys that, you know, if we get to 40, 50 in JCL, we shouldn't be getting out. Like we should be getting hundreds. So I've, I feel like I'll bang on about it a bit, but I think hundreds are your currency as a batsman. And I don't want players to be happy with getting 50 in the JCL. I think all the boys in the squad are good enough to be making hundreds. And a career highlight for you? As a player, it has to be winning the first grade two-day premiership um, in 2018. Is there any loss that still rankles, still particularly annoys you? Yes, there are two that I can't split and they're both from last season. So we lost two grand finals. The first one was in the 50 over format. <laughs> they both hurt, but quick summary of both games. Like in the one day final, I was captain. We batted first, made 3.30. You think you're in the game with 3.30, right? Yeah. In the final. Oh, I knew that, you know, we, we hadn't had it won because the other team had you know, Jimmy Pearson, Marnus Labuschagne, Sam Hazlitt, Simon Malenko. Like, it's a pretty handy team. But we got Jimmy Pearson and Marnus out in the first two overs. So two for eight off two overs, chasing 330. I, at that point, I thought the boys could be home here. But um, sure enough, Simon Malenko came in, scored 80 off about 30 balls, and they got it in about the 42nd over. So that one hurt. Ouch. The other one was the two-day grand final. We had opposition six for about 130 and then the number eight and nine both scored hundreds and then we got rolled so uh, obviously recency bias they're both from last season but both of them hurt they're gonna take a topping for sure um what's the funniest thing you've ever seen happen on the field i don't know i've seen a bloke get a bad decision and then proceed to walk all the way into the shower in his full kit like, and <laughs> that was pretty funny. And I've also seen something pretty similar where the bloke walked off and then he put all his gear in the bin and then kept walking to the change room. So those, those things make me laugh. I love, I love watching some people when they get out, either delighting in someone else's misery. <laughs> uh, who's your favorite teammate? Uh, Moo. Musashi. 
scoring a few hundreds himself this year. Yes. Uh, where's your favorite place to play cricket? Uh, gotta be home ground North, Sunno, Sunno close second. And where's the best place you've ever watched cricket? It's, it's hard to go past the Lords home cricket. Watched Freddie Flintoff bowl one of the quickest bowls there. So yeah, Lords, as long as you're not looking at that big media center, you're sitting at that end and looking at the other end. Yeah. Looks totally nuts. Okay. Here's one for you. Can you name one innings or bowling performance played by someone else that you wish you could have played yourself? Okay. So I listened to this question on another podcast and I, I thought of so many innings as a cricket badger that I wish I could have played, but I'm going to give you a weird response. So have you seen the footage of Virat Kohli batting in the nets? I think it was in like Adelaide. Or yeah, Houston. I think I have. He's facing his bowlers in the nets. If listeners haven't seen this video, do yourself a favor. It's only a short video, but it's just ridiculous. I wish I could battle like that. I'll go, I'll go dig it out and put it in the show notes. Okay. I'm going to give you some Japan specific questions. So what is your favorite thing about Japan? Food. Tabemono. <laughs> Can you name one place where any visitor must go? Jangara Ramen in Akihabara or SICG Tea Room. <laughs> and, and, and so since we're on food, what is your favorite food? One is tough, but I'll have to go with sushi if it's only one. But close behind, I'm going to say yakiniku and damen. Had, uh, had some sushi myself just today, in fact. Uh, and what's your worst food? Have you ever had any weird, horrible Japanese food? Because they do serve some quite odd stuff over there. So I heard another guest say anything fermented, or it might've been you, but I love my natto. Oh, really? What did they do to you as a child? <laughs> I love it. Last training camp I went to, I just went to 7-Eleven for lunch, bought like three packs of natto and, and one of those rice packs you can heat up and hopefully that endeared me to the boys. Immediately the boys knew you all. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I do have an answer. The worst. So I came to Japan. I went to Japan with a few of my good mates a couple of years ago. And the first izakaya we went to, they had um, chicken sashimi on the menu. Like, I don't know if that's a piss take, but no, it's a thing. You couldn't pay me to eat what? So it's just raw chicken. Yep. That's disgusting. You, you couldn't pay me to eat that. Yeah, that with the raw horse as well. That's the worst. <laughs> uh, okay, what is your favorite Japanese word or phrase and its meaning? Nomiho uh, <laughs> dai. Or you can drink. I guess that's one of the kanji you can read as well, right? <laughs> I see it in the Izakaya windows. <laughs> great. Yeah. Kendall, thank you very much for taking the time to come on and have a chat. It's been great. And uh, hopefully we'll actually get to see you over here at some point in the not too distant future. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Alice. That concludes this episode of the Japan Cricket Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. And if you really enjoyed listening, then I would be forever grateful if you could rate and review the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts. It would just help others to find the show and have the added bonus of making me feel a little bit better about myself. Until next time, arigatou gozaimashita.